This episode is brought to you by Refresh Pro B. Refresh Pro B is a vaginal probiotic clinically shown to balance yeast and bacteria. Visit www.refresh.ca. That's R-E-P-H-R-E-S-H.ca for more information. The relationship between exercise and atrial fibrillation is somewhat paradoxical in some instances. Too little exercise increases the risk of atrial fibrillation, but so too does too much exercise. I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Deputy Editor for the Canadian Medical Association Journal. Today I'm speaking with the authors of a practice article called Five Things to Know About Atrial Fibrillation in the Older Athlete, published in CMAJ. Dr. Derek Krinian and Dr. Adrian Baranchuk are joining me today to discuss it. I've reached them in Kingston. Welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you. Good afternoon. I'd like to start with each of you telling listeners a bit about who you are. Dr. Krinian, you go first. I'm an electrophysiology fellow at Queen's, and um, before this, I completed my cardiology training in Ireland. And Dr. Baranchuk? I'm Adrian Baranchuk. I'm a professor of medicine at Queen's University, and I am a cardiologist, electrophysiologist at Queen's. So I am serving as the secretary of the Inter-American Society of Cardiology, and um, I spend part of my time doing research. Okay, so your article is geared towards older athletes. What age range are we talking about when we talk about older athletes? There is not an exact definition for age, and rather than than using uh, strictly an age number, what uh, literature suggests is a threshold for the amount of exercise is what defines somehow um, how old of an athlete you are. And that has been previously established between two and 3,000 hours. So obviously, to reach that amount, certain amount of age has passed. Other publications have used the um, cutoff of 35 years of age. So as you can see, one is considered an older athlete when in the rest of your life you're still considered very young. Uh, just to add that, um, if anything, they're called a master's athletes once you reach 35, which is uh, pretty young. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a master's athlete and I'm in my 40s. So this article is of great interest to me. So let's define now for our listeners how much is too much and too little exercise. All right. Well, I, I'll take it first and then I'll pass it to, to my colleague, Dr. Krinin. It has been well documented, not only for atrial fibrillation, but for most of cardiovascular conditions, that sedentarism, that means doing no exercise at all, is detrimental. And that has to do with a slow metabolism, which goes along with not exercising along. On the other hand, it has been demonstrated that for endurance athletes uh, who train basically every day and for several hours, there is also an increment in the risk of atrial fibrillation. And this has to do with a series of adaptations that occur to the heart when you are training extensively. So one can see a sort of U-shaped curve where no exercise at all increases the risk of atrial fibrillation, but also exercising 
in an extenuating manner also increases the risk of atrial fibrillation. So it seems that it's more appropriate to exercise somehow in the middle. That's perfect. Um, and just to say, like, moderate regular exercise is defined as a three to six METs, such as brisk walks, light jogging, three to five times per week. So a cumulative dose of approximately 150 minutes. And that's what we'd recommend in general for your cardiovascular health. Okay, so when we're talking about high exercise intensity, do you measure that by uh, heart rate of beats per minute or um, do you measure it in some other way? Yes, no, it varied considerably in the literature. I mean, the World Health Organization defines vigorous exercise, uh, which is their level above moderate, as anything greater than six METs. But that, that, for example, would be heavy shoveling. So what we, we mean is even far beyond what they would decide, decide is vigorous exercise. We mean like training for an elite endurance athletes on one end of the spectrum. Okay. Can you explain for our listeners the relationship between exercise and atrial fibrillation? Yes. Prior to detect that exercise uh, could be linked to atrial fibrillation, we have learned from many other conditions such as diabetes, hypertension, sleep apnea, obesity, a direct link to atrial fibrillation. And most of these conditions have something in common. It produces a replacement of the normal cardiac myocyte in the, in the atria of the heart, which are the upper chambers of the heart, uh, to be replaced by fibrotic tissue. And those islands of fibrotic tissue serves as the anatomical substrate for this complex arrhythmia to occur. So how can we link that knowledge to the idea that exercise can induce atrial fibrillation? Well, um, extenuating exercises produces changes in the hemodynamics of uh, the heart with changes in the autonomic nervous system and tone, which favor the remodeling process of these upper chambers of the heart called the atria. Initially, there is a response of the atria to the increased resistance of the ventricle of athletes, a condition that we call, indeed, athlete heart, which, uh, as I said, induces a, a degree of dilation of the upper chambers. And that fiber disarray in the atria is what promotes these islands of fibrotic tissue like a scar tissue within, within your heart. Uh, once that happens, um, the heart is more propensed to disorganize the conduction system and the velocity of conduction. And this is when atrial fibrillation occurs. Okay, that's very clear. So you're saying that with intense exercise, you get changes to the heart as a whole, which then means that the atria are pressing against greater pressure, which causes them to dilate, which allows this uh, remodeling to occur, which disrupts the conduction system. Have I understood that correctly? You put it better than I did. Uh, okay. That's correct. We must stress that it is at a high-intensity endurance exercise that has been shown to have the association. The other thing that we, that we would like to comment with Dr. Krinin is that even when athletes are more prone to have healthy habits and healthier lifestyle, one should remember that as we age, the other components that may facilitate atrial fibrillation 
which by the way is the most common arrhythmia in clinical practice, uh, kick in. And when those things occur over a favorable anatomical substrate like uh, athlete heart is when that combination can be explosive and then you may present with atrial fibrillation in a much younger, and by younger I mean strictly by age younger, population that their counterparts that are not athletes. Because remember that we all age, even if we run every day, uh, we will all reach uh, 50 years of age and all the other components that help uh, atrial fibrillation to develop kick in in a predisposed anatomical substrate. Absolutely. So there are a number of factors and exercise is just one of them. So what do we know about the causes of atrial fibrillation in general and then in athletes? Well, yes, I think it's important to remember that um, other than just being a high-intensity athlete, we must also treat um, associated conditions such as sleep apnea and hypertension. Um, Usually weight isn't an issue, um, but certainly other modifiable risk factors that are well known to cause atrial fibrillation must not be ignored. Some of them are relatively common, like uh, obesity or excessive alcohol intake. Some of them are less frequent but are also modifiable, like uh, hyperthyroidism or recurrent infections uh, and so on. So in our holistic approach to the treatment of atrial fibrillation, first comes uh, the correction of all these factors that are potentially modifiable, including uh, drastic lifestyle changes. And even when it is counterintuitive that we mentioned this in a conversation about atrial fibrillation in the athlete, for those that uh, do not practice any type of exercise, exercising is one of the things that we recommend energetically to reduce the odds of atrial fibrillation. Of course, when this happens in an athlete, we are at the other side of the spectrum, and part of the things that we discuss is the detraining alternative as uh, a way to reduce the permanent offense to the, to the atrial myocardium. So what then are the symptoms of atrial fibrillation in athletes? And, and are these symptoms common or does it sometimes just get discovered incidentally? The majority of athletes are symptomatic from the data, um, largely because you need your atria as um, primer pumps, particularly at high endurance exercise, so they'll notice that their dyspnea, I may not notice my everyday, but uh, particularly when you try to compete in sports, uh, the vast majority of them are symptomatic as they try and exercise and reach their target. Other symptoms, uh, in addition to shortness of breath, include palpitations. And for some endurance athletes, uh, the feeling that they may, they may faint, we call that presyncope. And as Dr. Crinion said, this has to do with the lack of synchronicity between the upper and the lower chambers. How should healthcare providers then assess athletes who may be at risk of atrial fibrillation? This is a great question, and it also allows me to complete part of the, of the prior question that I, I think I skipped, which is uh, some atrial fibrillation has been documented in athletes, not because they are particularly symptomatic, but because they usually undergo serial uh, cardiovascular testing to prove that they are in a condition enough to, to practice 
sport at a competitive manner. So trying to link now this, this response with the last question, what we strongly suggest for um, endurance athletes is regular cardiovascular checkups that should include some form of cardiac monitoring. It is not infrequent that an athlete complains about palpitations, but at the time of the consult, the patient depicts a completely normal cardiovascular exam, including a normal electrocardiogram. And in this sense, what we call extended cardiac monitoring allows us to establish symptom rhythm correlation, which is basically to determine what's going on with the cardiac rhythm when you're feeling palpitations. In the past, we only had a um, few devices that were not very athlete-friendly because that could require that the athlete could be connected to a series of leads to the chest and use a, a portable machine and to run with that portable machine. Nowadays, we have uh, two different sets of uh, cardiac monitoring uh, for extended cardiac monitoring that we can use in athletes. One are the so-called injectable loop recorders, which are small devices of the size of a pen clip that we can inject under the skin at, at the level of the chest, and they would give us information 24 over 7 for two to three years. They can be paired with a cell phone, so um, they are quite practical. And more lately, and I'm sure that the audience will be aware of this, now we have uh, external monitors that can have the form of a smartwatch or it can have the form of uh, and a small rectangle with a couple of electrodes that you paste on the back of your phone. And that allows us um, to do both automatic recordings, but also uh, activation of the recording upon feeling symptoms. And that information can be easily stored in the patient's cell phone and can be mailed to the healthcare provider, giving us an idea of how the heart responds or reacts when the patient is not feeling well. But one can go to the next uh, electronic store and buy one of them without medical prescription. Uh, th this is an interesting area because it's a change on, on the paradigm where doctors could recommend who should be screened and who shouldn't. And now we have, with this type of devices, we have translated that responsibility into the patient. It's now the patient who decides whether they want to use these devices or not. However, we doctors can take advantage of the existence of these devices. And of course, depending on the device, they range from, from 120 bucks to, to $450. So they can be expensive watches. But the truth is that these new technologies seem, seems to be here to stay. And the sooner as doctors will learn how to take advantage of these platforms, the better. I would agree with you. I, I remember reading up around this kind of heart rate monitoring when I was looking at Elliot Kipchoge's 159 challenge recently, because I think he wore one of them and they, there was a video on the, from the physiologists about how they tracked all his vitals while he was running. What can be done to reduce the risk of atrial fibrillation in older athletes, starting with non-invasive approaches? As we just briefly mentioned earlier on, to control all AF-associated risk factors, hypertension, sleep apnea, 
Uh, most athletes are normal weight, but also you must ask specifically on alcohol consumption and performance supplements, particularly caffeine. And in terms of the level of exertion, I, I guess for some people that are prone to AF, it's, it's, it's unknown who will be and, and who won't. But, but certainly um, above a certain age, there are those that will, that will develop AF and uh, you can try and get them to detrain, but it's often difficult because the exercise has become so much a part of their life. So let's talk a little bit more about detraining, because I think uh, any athlete will cringe at the idea of having to reduce the amount that they train as they age. Yeah, it goes far and beyond of the 15-20 minute encounter that a doctor can have with uh, an athlete patient. So when we suggest the train to an individual that has made uh, his or her life around sport, and sometimes sports is the vehicle for making a living, the training implies uh, not a lifestyle modification, but rather a life modification and a life change that most of the athletes that I had the opportunity uh, to talk with are not eager or able to do. So as soon as the detraining uh, possibility comes into place, they immediately are asking for other alternatives and options that could not require detraining because detraining is not a possibility for them. And I could suggest uh, practicing a lot of caution on how to approach the detraining strategy when one has the perception that that training is how the individual is conducting uh, his or her life. Because um, even when you could accept moving to other uh, therapeutical approaches, once you have placed the detraining card into the into the relationship with your patient, it's very difficult to take it back and say, oh, you know what? Okay, you can continue to do that, but we're going to do something else. The idea of detraining will, will stick with the patient forever. So, so one has to be very careful if detraining is the option. Something that I would like to mention here is we have had experience in, um, in a phenomenon called reverse remodeling. As you mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, the process how the heart develops atrial fibrillation is through a process of remodeling. And that includes remodeling at uh, a molecular level, at an ultrastructural level, and also at a structural level, for example, by increasing the size of your left atrium. There are several conditions where this remodeling process can be reversed. Some of them, for example, are sleep apnea. Treatment with CPAP, which is uh, this mask that we use to generate uh, positive pressure, has induced reversed atrial remodeling, meaning the size of the atrium returns to normal values and the velocity uh, of conduction goes back also to normal values. A similar thing happens, for example, in patients treated with sophisticated devices for heart failure like a cardiac resynchronization therapy. The atria can reverse the remodeling process. However, and this is the important thing to understand with the detraining 
alternative as an induction of reverse remodeling is that the tissue that has died and has transformed into fibrous tissue, that island of fibrotic tissue could never disappear even if the surrounding tissue returns to normal. So as far as I am aware, the detraining condition may improve the dynamics of the atrium. However, one should exercise caution to say to the patient that if the patient detrains, there will no longer be atrial fibrillation because the aspects of the atria that have been uh, modified to a fibrotic tissue, that will not improve by detraining. So one may impact the life of this patient significantly by um, suggesting that sports should not be practiced at least at the competitive level for not obtaining the desired outcome of making atrial fibrillation disappear. There's no doubt in my mind that the patients may improve some of their symptoms, but what has happened has happened, and maybe it is time to think in a more invasive and an early invasive approach to control for atrial fibrillation. So is what you're saying that um, evidence shows that in some conditions you can reverse the remodeling of the atrium and there is evidence to show this. However, for the atrial fibrillation that is related to the athlete's heart and overtraining at high intensity, there is no evidence that um, reducing the amount of training can reverse the remodeling of the atrium. Is that correct? Um, there is evidence, and one of the animal uh, models of exercise-induced remodeling has shown this, that there is a reverse uh, atrial remodeling process, which does not necessarily translate in disappearance of atrial fibrillation. And we think we know why, because remember that atrial fibrillation is not the only problem of a remodeled atrium. It's conduit and hemodynamic uh, functions are also affected in a remodeled atrium. However, despite uh, a significant improvement in the structural and hemodynamic components of an atrium that has experienced a positive reverse remodeling, disappearance of atrial fibrillation is a completely different objective. And these animal models uh, performed, uh, I, I do recall one of our colleagues uh, is Dr. Paul Dorian, has participated on this basic science animal model project of induced exercise remodeling in the atria, has shown that even when the several parameters improve that have to do with the dynamic and functioning of the atrium, making atrial fibrillation disappear completely, that goal was not reached. So um, trying to, to do knowledge translation into, into this population, one should be very, very cautious in saying to a patient that by the training, the atrial fibrillation problem is solved.
there are conditions in the atrium that will improve, but the patient may continue to experience atrial fibrillation. Okay. And then the other question that I had for you was you were talking about the importance of how you talk to the patient about detraining and that once you mention the word detraining, you cannot take that back in the patient relationship. And that made me think about how the patient thinks about their condition, given that these are high-functioning, high-intensity athletes in the main experiencing this problem. Is there a psychological aspect to dealing with these kinds of patients that, that one needs to bear in mind? Uh, usually happens the question is way better than the answer. And in this, in this particular case, maybe because we both do not feel completely qualified to run psychological uh, uh, performances of our patients. So having done this for 30 years, uh, I have learned that some doctor talking during uh, a medical encounter can have profound impact on the patient's psychology. That applies to athletes, as in this case, or applies to many other conditions than once you put them out there and the patient is able to Google it themselves and go through the nuances of a condition that has not been confirmed, but you entertain that uh, as a possibility. I'm thinking, for example, on top of my head, the, the extraordinarily rare Brugada syndrome. Once you entertain this type of diagnosis and then the patient goes with no supervision into into searching this uh, in the net, the psychological impact on that patient until you prove yourself that the patient does not have the condition is deleterious. And one may think maybe I should perform tests uh, looking for um, confirming or ruling out this disease without throwing the potential diagnosis or in this case the potential a therapeutical approach as a, a magic solution for everything. So particularly with uh, athletes that compete or that they make a living on the sport they practice, the immediate reaction to the offer of the training is rejected. What is the long-term consequences on their psychology of having even discussed this topic? I'm, I'm not sure. I, I, I couldn't be so uh, firm in saying that one has produced a permanent damage to their psychology. But given the fact that there's not strong evidence that atrial fibrillation will completely disappear, I could be careful. So the last point in your article is that ablation is increasingly offered as a first-line therapy. Can you tell us what that involves? Yeah, so um, the, the latest um, international guidelines on the ablation of AF were to recognize this uh, group of athletes which have to date been underrepresented um, in prior guidelines. And essentially, they, they give it a class 2A recommendation to consider performing a PDI uh, as first-line therapy. And essentially, this, this really becomes because um, athletes in particular, number one, they don't like being in atrial fibrillation. And no, number two, um, antiarrhythmic medications um, are poorly tolerated or even contraindicated in, in competitive sports. So the procedure itself, um, however, we, we don't have a whole, a, an awful lot of data 
exactly on athletes, particularly in the last uh, few years. Most of the studies were based on where the 2012, 2014 were referenced in the guidelines, in which case success rates appear quite similar to every other atrial fibrillation, paroxysmal atrial fibrillation case. So in the article, we gave it a quote of um, 60% first procedure success rate and 80% for the second, which were um, the collated data from those studies. That's very interesting. I'm just curious that, that you say that there haven't been good data up to now. Is that possibly because people who are fit and healthy and active, generally it's more rare to find atrial fibrillation in that population than in patients who are more sedentary? Yes, exactly. To get a cohort of elite athletes in a handful of centers that all work together, it would be challenging. Okay. One of the things to, to keep into consideration is that in the last two, three years, the advance in technology has made uh, atrial fibrillation ablation safer, first of all. Nowadays, it's quite rare to, to see or to hear about uh, dramatic complications of this procedure. Complications are quite minor. But most importantly, um, our tools now permit to map the atrium in a way that we couldn't dream four or five years ago, where we know exactly the areas where the electricity is conflictive and should be eliminated with lots of precision to uh, approach the zones of the atrium that will help in controlling atrial fibrillation without affecting the areas that are healthy and are not part of the atrial fibrillation circuits. So we have gained lots of experience. We have better mapping tools. We have better um, catheters to deliver energy. In addition, our catheters now can measure the pressure that we are applying towards the cardiac wall, which is a retrofeedback on how much energy we can deliver in a safe manner. So as you can see, um, as, as, as technology advances, as we learn more about uh, the physiology of the changes in the atria of, of the athletes, this is a field that will continue to expand and uh, may lead in the future to the detraining alternative uh, not to be posed by doctors as a preferred alternative if that is substantially changing the life or the quality of life of our patients. What are some of the resources that you would recommend if listeners would like to learn more about atrial fibrillation in older athletes? Um, well, well, certainly um, for, for the patient perspective, the Canadian Cardiovascular Society does an excellent information on atrial fibrillation and the implications. And then um, I suppose the CMAJ, our article, obviously. Uh, but, but even beforehand, this is a topic that was previously discussed in 2014 with the Ottawa Group. And they talked about exercise training in patients with atrial fibrillation. And then in 2017, there's quite an expansive review by Mark Estes, um, the third in Jack Electrophysiology. Well, um, he mentioned initially uh, going to the, uh, the Canadian Cardiovascular Society resources. Within their website, there is a free access for doctors and for general audience uh, on atrial fibrillation as a whole, 
And when you enter that window, um, it will open several uh, options and aspects of atrial fibrillation to navigate through. One of the things that uh, for doctors I found uh, very attractive to be familiarized with is with the what we call the CCS recommendations. Specifically for atrial fibrillation, they have been updated every two years and for a period of time every year as we learn more from randomized control trials and we've been able to tune up um, recommendations on when to submit the patient for atrial fibrillation ablation, how to provide uh, stroke prophylaxis if needed. Uh, and this, of course, opens the topic of anticoagulation in endurance athletes that is not the same of anticoagulation in the general population because, because these patients can be exposed to to some sort of accident that regular individuals do not. So um, for reading more about that, I could direct uh, our listeners to the Canadian Cardiovascular Society website. Well, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. It's been good to speak to you. Thank you very much. Thank you. It has been a pleasure talking to you today. I've been speaking with Dr. Derek Krinian and Dr. Adrian Baranchuk. Dr. Derek Krinian is an electrophysiology fellow at Kingston Health Sciences Center in Kingston, Ontario. Dr. Adrian Baranchuk is a cardiologist electrophysiologist at Kingston Health Sciences Center and professor of medicine at Queen's University. He is also editor-in-chief of the Journal of Electrocardiology. To read the practice article they co-authored, visit cmaj.ca. Also, don't forget to subscribe to CMAJ Podcasts on SoundCloud or a podcast app, and let us know how we're doing by leaving a rating. I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Deputy Editor for CMAJ. Thank you for listening. <laughs>